Hey, Tripod listeners. So this one's going to be a little bit of a different type of episode. Normally, the guys kind of jump from one topic to another topic. It's sometimes serious, but it's usually quite silly. And today we decided to focus on one specific, more serious topic. Now, I think the best place to start this specific story is from this interview. It's from January 10th, 2022 with Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's the director of the CDC. She went on Good Morning America to discuss testing results and also just the outlook of how the pandemic will continue to affect us going forward. Given that, is it time to start rethinking how we're living with this virus, that it's potentially here to stay? You know, really important study, if I may just summarize it, a study of 1.2 million people who were vaccinated between December and October and demonstrated that severe disease occurred in about 0.015% of the people who um, received their primary series and death in 0.003% of those people. The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75% occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. To paraphrase, people with four or more comorbidities were more likely to die from COVID. Now, a comorbidity is when someone has more than one health condition at the same time. A list of someone's comorbidities could include depression, diabetes, high blood pressure, cerebral palsy, ankylosing spondylitis, spastic diplegia cerebral palsy, cancer. The list goes on and on. Essentially, disabled people. People who were unwell well to begin with. And yes, really encouraging news in the context of Omicron. Today, we wanted to dive into that question a little deeper. What's it like to be disabled in America? What's it like to be disabled during a global pandemic? So to answer that question, we interviewed some of our friends. Today's show is much more edited than usual. So bear with us and thanks for listening. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. Hello, Andrew. Would you mind introducing yourself and what you do? Sure. My name is Andrew Gerza. I'm a disability awareness consultant and host of the Disability After Dark podcast. Uh, so, Andrew, what is your disability? I live with a cerebral palsy, and I'm a full-time power wheelchair user. Power wheelchair user, both in that it's powered by electricity, but also, like, you put the power in power wheelchair it's, you user. you know, really, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> That's right. I think the first time we met, you described yourself as super disabled, which immediately broke the ice and made, <laughs> made me laugh. That's correct. I did, yeah, and it's, yeah. not an, it's not untrue. <laughs> My name is Imani Barbarin. I am a disability rights activist and advocate, um, and I use communications and social media to leverage the voices of the disability community to promote change. Yeah, and I, frankly, to be honest, Imani, I've learned a ton from you just from following you. So uh, to start, thank you for you know everything you do and the information that you provide. What is your disability? I have cerebral palsy. I have what's called spastic diplegic cerebral palsy, which basically just means that from the waist down, my muscles really tense really quickly. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. Uh, it's it's a the amalgam of different uh, symptoms. So it's it's hard to pinpoint, but that's the basics of it. Yeah, I think with any disability, it's like here's a rough picture, and don't yeah. worry about the specifics unless how much time do you have? Right, exactly. It's like let me tell you how my day went, and then we could just pick out the symptoms that manifested just today. <laughs> My name is Carice Hill. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I am loosely a disability activist 
I dabble in a lot of areas in chronic disease and disability Twitter. I live in poverty in California. I live with AS and I live with autism as well. And I am a gardener and a parent to two, no, sorry, four cats. Don't you forget those other two, Carice. How dare gonna, you? My goodness. They're going to take me out. Yeah, if the camera gets knocked over and the Wi-Fi cuts out, we'll know that the cats have, have gotten you. <laughs> Indeed. This is a big question, but the last two years, living as a disabled person during the pandemic, what's that been like? I began sheltering in place before it was even declared a pandemic. And uh, funnily enough, I got really sick in early March of 2020. Everyone thought it was COVID. My friends and chosen family thought I was dying. We wrote my will. And so that was my start to the pandemic. And nothing has changed since then. I mean, I live in a, a care situation, so I have care providers and personal care attendants coming in and out of my home every day to provide me with the basic necessities that most people take for granted. So getting up, having a shower, just doing the day-to-day things people don't think about. Yeah. And when the when the pandemic hit, a lot of the staff started getting sick, which means that the people that require that care don't receive care. So over the last two years I've gone I've gone through weeks where they've said to us, we can't shower you because there might be an outbreak of COVID. So we can give you a bed bath, but you don't get to have a shower for possibly two weeks, maybe a month. They want to take every precaution. But what that does is it puts disabled people who need help to just have hygiene in a much more precarious position than I think people realize. Yeah, I, I guess. So thinking back to when the pandemic first started, we we all went into pseudo lockdown. I'm putting it in the biggest air quotes known to man because we <laughs> never quite did that. But w- what was that like? Because not having people come to you, that, that's not an option. That was never an option. Within the first year, we had 12 of our staff get COVID and it was constantly shuffling care and you didn't know if someone was going to show up or not. You didn't know if you were going to get out of bed that day, you were never sure. And there have been moments where, like, I would have to call family members or friends and say, hey, can you come get me out of bed? Because I don't know if I'll be able to um, today. And I have stuff to do. I'm a freelancer. I work for myself. And, you know, I have stuff to do. So, like, if I can't do that, how do I make money? How do I provide for myself? How do I just have a life or just even just get out of bed, period? And this by the way, is not just in the beginning. I mean, this is continuing. I saw what even just as recently as a week or two ago, you were unable to have someone come give you a shower for for days. That's right. To not have that really plays a role in your mental health and really plays a role in your, how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your body and your ability level and your productivity level. All of that stuff goes down the drain because you know you might not get out of bed. Or if you go to bed one night, they might not get you up the next morning because no one's there. When I started seeing that not only were the staff getting it, but also realizing that because I have cerebral palsy, I was immediately aware that if I got it, it could be pretty dire for me, and that was scary. I I basically gave up sitting at my desk because I'm literally like, it was a hard chair. I'm like, if I'm going to be home 24 hours a day for most days... I'm going to be more comfortable. It's been really rough on 
myself, my partner, who's also disabled, who had COVID at one point mm. and was hospitalized. It's been terrifying. You know, every single day you're terrified to interact with people and to be in public and you're, you're terrified to go anywhere. And so your, your healthcare stops. And I had prided myself on, even though not everything's going really well with this body, like I, I at least <laughs> knew what was going on, right? Like I, yeah. I knew what my body was doing. I knew how it worked. I knew when I needed to check in with doctors and check in with my physicians and surgeons, but that stopped. Like I didn't, my first time being to the doctor was last month in two years. Wow. Um, and it, it's been devastating. Like I have a hernia, I've, I've developed GERD, like I'm just, like my body is just like, you needed to do something sooner. But again, going into the hospital was like, you know, terrifying. It was very clear from the very beginning that we were the ones that were going to die. So don't worry. And that, hmm. that's how we started the pandemic was disabled people being told, Actually, they weren't even speaking to us. They weren't telling us anything. They were telling non-disabled people not to worry because, you know, we were disposable. You know, don't worry. Those people are going to die and not you. And so the fury. That's how we started. <laughs> that's how we started. And it hasn't stopped. It's even gotten worse. You know, it's it's gotten to the point where anytime an immunocompromised people person or a disabled person who's not immunocompromised says it's not safe for me um, I've delayed surgeries whatnot the automatic response from so many people is we'll just stay home it's not my responsibility to care for you and that's what we're up against is knowing that every time we open our mouths or sign with our hands or type with our keyboard there are people out there who literally don't see us as human. They don't see us as deserving freedom. So when people are saying, oh, you know, like, take off the mask because we want to be free. Whose freedoms are you talking about? It's not mine. As soon as COVID started, they said, OK, well, hospitals are overrun. There was a shortage of ventilators and they had some horrible situations where they had to decide we're going to have to start making decisions about who's worth it, who isn't. And yeah. basically immediately the medical community said, well, if we have to make that call, disabled people are getting the axe. It's terrifying because what it shows is that it's always been there. If if your first thought is to say, and I have seen it on I've seen it on documentaries, I've seen nurses and doctors say it, I've seen them say things like, Oh, you know, well we would we would only hope that the elderly and the disabled get it and then it's okay. And and, and you know, the director of the CDC said something very similar a few weeks ago, we all in the community were like, what did you just say? Why would you? Ah, okay. I know you've taken umbrage with the CDC through this. Uh, perhaps umbrage is a polite <laughs> word, but I like that word. Uh, seeing the CDC director talk about only disabled and elderly are getting sick. And that's a great thing. Uh, you would argue that's not good news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't see, but my fists like started clenching as soon as you started talking about that. I really wish that... Um, medical professionals would see our lives as valuable. There's still stories like that of Michael Hickson. Michael Hickson was a quadriplegic man hospitalized for COVID-19. And as it was getting worse, Michael's wife asked his doctor what the next steps were to save his life. His doctor responded on a recording. As of right now, his quality of life, he doesn't have much of one. As of right now, his quality of life, 
he doesn't have much of one. Michael Hickson died at the age of 46 on June 11, 2020. The entire medical institution really kind of devalues and gaslights disabled people on a daily basis. Sure. But then you throw into the mix the fact that we're technically not worth saving because we're seen as not valuable to society or to the economy or to productivity. And then on top of that, I'm a black woman. So <laughs> me going into the doctor's office is sketchy to begin with. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple. That's a perfect storm of doctors right. not giving a fuck. Right. I'm like, so and I, I like I told my boyfriend, like, if you if I am so sick that I have to go to hospital, I don't know if I would want to go. Like, wow. just let me die here because I would rather be at home than be in the care of somebody who doesn't give a crap. Yes, everybody takes the oath of do no harm. Great. But what does that actually look like in a crisis? Is it okay to talk about um, Maggie? Sure. So I know Maggie works in the healthcare field. You are exposed to a different side than I am of you live with someone who sees the impact in the healthcare setting every day. So I'm just curious what what that's like for you. I think I live at the intersection of a lot of confusing things. So so on the one hand with Maggie, yeah, I have seen that healthcare workers are just fully fucking exhausted. And you know, they're understaffed already and they're getting exposed all the time. You know, there are people like Maggie who really care about preventing infections among the most vulnerable people. And then there are people they don't care as much. They're happy to break the seal on that mask. I think my job necessitates a certain level of risk. And sometimes I'm okay with that risk. And other times I feel totally fucking insane. We had some scares here and I wondered why I was doing this at all. And the answer was, well, okay, you know, this is our job. But I'm like, but but is it? Isn't at a certain point life and safety more important than like keeping a company running? And I think that's the whole country. We've, we've put keeping the company running ahead of public's health and our own health again and again and again. And I guess as time has gone on, I've been beat down like the rest of us to just kind of accept, well... Life is risky and you got to go and make that money. And um, it doesn't have to be this way. It just doesn't. We're going to take a quick break and thank some of our sponsors. But when we come back, we'll be talking to Raven Baxter about what happens when someone gets long COVID. I felt like I had a band around my chest and I would go in and breathe for air and I couldn't breathe in past four and how long COVID can be a mass disabling event for many. All that and more after the break. Dr. Raven, I should start by asking, how, how are you feeling today? It's <laughs> <laughs> a loaded question. <laughs> well, you caught me on probably the best day that I've had so far. I saw you say that you, you're walking today. I'm walking. This is Dr. Raven Baxter. She was diagnosed with COVID in December of 2021. Zach talked to her in February. I am a science communicator. I have a doctorate in science education and my um, other degrees are in molecular biology. So I combine those two fields to make science fun and interesting to the public. So Raven tested positive for COVID on a Sunday. And for the next three days, she had intense flu-like symptoms. Day four... The flu-like symptoms had disappeared. 
I felt okay. I was like, I beat it. You know what I mean? I beat COVID. But then the shortness of breath kicked in on day five. Long COVID or post-COVID-19 condition refers to COVID-19 symptoms that persist beyond the initial phase of a COVID-19 infection. And while this is still so new and being studied and defined by various organizations, we do know that the WHO has defined common symptoms as fatigue, shortness of breath, cognitive dysfunction, and a whole laundry list of others. I mean, we just have no idea the extent of what this is doing to our bodies. There is documentation of depression and anxiety being linked to um, COVID and um, documented as a post-COVID condition. In fact, yeah. when I went to my doctor and I followed up with them, when they did my write-up of our appointment, there's a code. Like, they have codes in the system of post-COVID conditions. And on my paperwork, it says post-COVID condition, colon, anxiety, post-COVID condition, colon, depression. So this is, they talk about these conditions in the context of COVID. So this virus has also been known to reactivate other viruses. This information is coming out now, reactivating dormant viruses that are in our bodies. Studies estimate that out of the 80 million people infected with the coronavirus in the U.S. alone, around 27 million of those people could develop long-term symptoms. Viewers probably are, are asking a lot of questions. Uh, all at once. Uh, so things that I know I would be asking, they would say, well, Dr. Raven, uh, how old are you? Are you healthy? Otherwise, like, was there something that made you more prone to this? I think the answer is young, yes and no. <laughs> you're, you're right. I mean, I, I'm uh, 28, no pre-existing conditions. I've never been hospitalized for any illnesses. I don't have any chronic illnesses. And I was relatively fit, you know, and I had good eating habits. Don't smoke or drink, you know. Um, I'm just, I'm just chilling, really. And COVID really deeply impacted my life, I would say. Yeah. I've, I've, I consider myself to have been sick for the past 45 days. I've never been this ill in my life. And I never would have imagined that COVID would do anything like this to me, but it has. Long COVID, we heard about it in the beginning, and it was just this uh, scary hypothetical, this scary what if. Maybe you knew someone that had it, but um, I, I don't think it's been in the forefront of many of our minds throughout this pandemic. And as we go forward, I, I fear that it may become one of the lasting legacies of this pandemic. There was a one point where I couldn't see a way out of this. I'm like, I'm going to have to get a wheelchair. I saw that. Yeah, you were looking for for uh, recommendations on on Twitter to to get a motorized right. wheelchair because I it, the fatigue was lasting so long it wasn't improving and I said, well, I gotta get out of bed. I gotta, you know, but I can't walk. What am I gonna do? I have doctor's appointments. I can't move. Well, and what that unfortunately exposes is we already in this country and in the world have horrible infrastructure for sick leave for disability rights and disability benefits. I'm terrified to see what the long-term effects are to people that have had COVID. The Center for American Progress did a report that 1.2 million more people are disabled than before the pandemic, uh, were disabled wow. because of the pandemic. That's a lot of people. Um, That's a lot of people. Long COVID is going to create a lot more disabled people than I think we're ready for. And I don't think... I mean, I, I say, welcome, join the club. Hi, we've always been there. But <laughs> for the rest of the, of the world, I don't think we're ready for that conversation. And that's going to be a huge wake-up call for a lot of people. 
In terms of worsening disabilities, I've heard everything from autoimmune diseases to POTS to, um, I'm hearing now of dementia, um, people developing early onset dementia. Um, even the brain fog of simply just being in this much stress for this long, people are having cognitive difficulties, difficulties focusing. There's a huge swath of the population all over the world that's saying, well, if we get COVID, it is what it is. Well, no, we don't know because you can say that now, but in a year and a half when you all of a sudden lose the ability to speak or walk or can't remember something you knew yesterday because of COVID, what are you going to do then? People who have long COVID are now disabled. Welcome. And (laughs) for their sake, it sounds terrible. I hope that it is not permanent, but uh, we have a whole new uh, batch of people, over a million people joining the disability community. America, the world, but let's talk about America, already does not know how to handle disabled people. So what happens to our systems when we add a million more on top of something that already doesn't work? I mean, we're seeing long waits for Social Security income. We're seeing people being forced out of their homes into poverty. Um, And when you say the world, you would actually incidentally be correct. 100,000 people died while waiting to, to have a Social Security hearing. The study Imani is referencing here happened between 2008 to 2019. Over 109,725 individuals died prior to receiving a final decision on their disability benefit appeal. And that was the system when it was good. There's really not an emphasis on disability care across the world. Anywhere, um, sure. Yeah, like, and people always ask me, like, which country is best? I'm like, the, the bar's on the floor. Like, <laughs> the book. Like, I'm like, what do you want from me? Like, You are in Canada, so... We got a different thing going on, but what kind of social security like is there for uh, disabled people? I mean, in the province where I am, so I'm in Ontario, Toronto, um, you get about a thousand bucks a month, but that is before your rent, and that's before bills, and that's before you pay anything. By the time you're done paying everything, you probably are living on about 500, 600 a month, period. If And if you're not doing a side hustle or being a freelancer or I'm constantly working just so that I can not not even so I can do cool luxurious things but so I can just have enough money in the bank to do to do my essentials groceries keep the lights on and you know maybe have a pizza every now and then if you're disabled and you need social assistance you are supposed to be poor I've ne- you're never making enough and you're constantly bumping up against wow. the poverty line Yeah, to be disabled is to be assumed that you will and should live in poverty um, or right on that line. And it's uh, it's pretty fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really, really fucked up. If you want to apply for SSI, you need to have less than two thousand dollars per month. That is a a staggering fact that people do not know. So I want you to slow (laughs) it down and break it down for people for Social Security income. If you are disabled, you need less than. $2,000 total. They'll check your account every month. It is just the most like every time I hear that stat, every time I tell people that stat, not stat, that 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 law, that fact it is to be disabled in this country. It is you are forced into perpetual welfare, right? I mean, or on the verge of it. Yeah. And you either have to be independently wealthy or extremely living well below the poverty line in order to survive. So there are going to be people spending all their money, divorcing, uh, losing their savings. And people are getting divorced specifically so they can qualify below that line. 
Yeah, getting divorced so that their partner could have all the assets in their name and then the person with the disability so could, you know, have zero dollars <laughs> to their name, which is terrifying because when you think about it, that also makes the disability community rife for abuse, financial mm-hmm. abuse, spousal abuse, because if somebody has your assets in their name, you have nowhere to go. I'm doing the Imani thing now where I'm hearing the most horrible thing possible and all I can do is laugh because it's, right, like it's, so, it's, it's just so deeply fucked up. It is like there's nothing more inhuman than that. An accessible vehicle is at the lowest point $50,000. A service animal is thirty dollars to $50,000. And you're not allowed to save that money. When we come back from the break, we'll be discussing what returning to normal even looks like and if there is a normal to return to. It seems like the country is barreling ahead to a carefree summer. That that seems to be the tea leaves that I'm reading, right? You know, COVID yeah. or Coachella just announced that they're going to have no COVID restrictions, no masks, no vaccine, go have fun. It seems like, once again, disabled people are going to be left to fend for themselves. I see disabled people, again, begging people to wear masks, even if it's just their choice. Um, And people, again, not caring. (laughs) And I feel like another variant is going to pop up in fall or winter because people have been congregating without masks and without the proper protections. There's a pattern that goes with as soon as things feel safe for a certain subset of the population, Mitigation efforts are pulled back. I was just beginning to think, now I'm boosted. The weather's getting warmer. Maybe I can go on like a picnic with a friend. And that's the extent of the safety. But then the mask mandates were pulled off. And it's like, okay, now I just go and cease to exist again. And that's, it feels like that's what they want us to do. If they were in our homes every day and if they saw, because we've, you and I talked about it, if they saw, your chronic pain journey or they saw my disability journey and they saw it every day, maybe they would think differently about it because it doesn't touch them as readily as it does you and I right now. They don't, it's not something they think about. So as much as I want to admonish those individuals and be like, what are you even doing? Part of me is also like, well, I have to keep educating because if I get mad at you and get angry, well, that's valid. I also, I also know that that's to get mad is energy and energy If you deplete all that, then you get sick faster. So I try to just do what I do and hope that people listen and tell my story on Twitter and Instagram and hope that it goes somewhere. Well, I mean, the thing is with the disability community, people really only care when they're in proximity to us and can be heralded for accepting our difference or helping us with our difference, right? This whole idea of inspiration narratives and inspiration or exploitation, it relies on proximity, to disabled people, to interact with disabled people. And yet we've been so isolated, we're not even thought about, right? We're not even being discussed amongst certain groups of people. They're putting themselves at risk too. Like, that's what I don't get. I get Americans not caring about other people. We're selfish people. But to not care about yourself, like knowing what you know. There is a chance that you will become disabled and we're over here, we're telling you. Yeah. No one takes care of disabled people. So be selfish and you will save yourself strife in the future and also be selfish. Make the world better for disabled people and the disabled community. Because guess what? If you live a really long time, you also are going to join us. No matter what, you're coming. You're getting here eventually. Well, I think what people think 
when they think of disability is like a very isolated group of people and segregated group of people, which is true, but your likelihood of becoming disabled increases as you age um, and has increased greatly with this pandemic. So you are who you were before your disability, you're just now disabled. But I think the community is really open to making sure that there's space for the newly disabled and for people who are dealing with ident an identity crisis of becoming disabled because when we tie almost all of our identity to productivity in the economy, it could feel devastating to realize nobody sees you in that light anymore. Like you don't have value within that framework. Uh, you'll be happy to know, or I don't know if you'll be happy to know, um, you should know that since our first talk, you, you had asked me if I considered myself disabled, and it was something that I wasn't sure that I could or if I should, and I I, I do, and I, I thank you for helping me on that Oh, journey. well, yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad to hear that, because, I mean, it's not an easy, it's not an easy word to say. Yeah. It comes with so much baggage, and people put so much on you when you start talking about that. It's othered, and we don't think about it, and we think of disability as this this very small niche that only touches a few unlucky few um but this touches a lot of people's lives yeah the disability community is one of the most restorative and kind and generous group of people that you will ever come across at least a little portion that i that i kind of situate myself within i have found a corner of twitter that i call queer crip twitter so queer people, disabled people, um, <laughs> that's my fam. I've found my family during the pandemic and, you know, so I have my trans siblings who are also disabled, who have the same disabilities as me, who are also autistic and just having that safe space where I'm not going to be questioned. We all know that we're terrified that's, you know, just having a safe space where people care about me, people are fighting for the same stuff that I'm fighting for. You know, for disabled people, the fatigue is real and we're not tired of the virus, we're tired of ableism and finding, you know, finding our community, centering ourselves around our community has been really awesome. Yeah, I think what I want people to walk away with is you need to prioritize the voices of the people who are going to be most affected by your actions. Um, and even if you think what you're doing is benign or doesn't matter, it matters to people that you may not see or interact with on a daily basis. Our lives have literally stopped as disabled people. It's not a matter of not being able to go to the grocery store. We don't do any of those things. We can't go out as often as we would like to. Um, so understand just how impactful are on a daily basis in the actions that you're taking. There's a phrase in the disability community called nothing about us without us. And that can be applied across all aspects of life, all aspects of public decision making. I mean, what has to change whether we get more disabled people or not is they should be hiring disabled people at high, the highest levels of government to advise the president, to advise world leaders, to advise them all those people on how do we do this not only at, at governmental levels but in hospitals we need disabled doctors and nurses and liaisons to talk about 
How do we help help these individuals when they start needing wheelchairs, when they start needing attendant care? Who's going to guide them through? Well, guess what? The best people to guide them through are the people that live it every day. I know how to do that, but I'm not going to do it for you for free. I should we should be <laughs> we should be compensated for our knowledge and for our wisdom as disabled people. People don't realize that the lived experience of being disabled comes with a lot of gifts to share with the world, but if I give it away for free, then how am I going to eat? Hold your policymakers accountable and make them accountable for your life. This is your life. This is life and death. This is this is your daily life for the next iteration, for the next chapter. Um, and I would also want people to walk away with, we're not getting normal back. Get that out of your mind. We're not getting normal back, but we can do better. We can do better by one another. It is not just, let's fall back into our old patterns. Let's make sure all these systems go back to the way they were, even if they were broken. We have the opportunity to do better because we can all see it now. There's no one that can say that they don't see it. So take that as an opportunity to change where you live, change the the policies that affect your community, and change this country for the better, because we can. There also is something selfish that you can take away here from being selfless. If you center those who are most vulnerable in your considerations, it will make life better for everyone. And I fear what the future looks like if we continue on this path. And if nothing else, I hope that people can take away um, some fucking empathy and understanding that while the pandemic may be improving, it is far from over. And for many people, it will be far from over for a long, long time. This episode is obviously a very different type of episode than we're used to doing, but if you enjoyed it, please comment below and hit us up on social media. A huge thank you to Andrew Gerza, Carice Hill, Amani Barberin, and Raven Baxter for participating in this and giving us the wisdom to make the episode. All of our guests' social media handles are in the description, so please go follow them. They have fantastic things to say online. Zach Kornfeld was our interviewer and intrepid host. This episode was produced by me, Miles Monsignor, and edited by myself and Rainy Toll. Enormous shout-out to Rainy Toll for going above and beyond and turning hours and hours of footage into something that we could actually work with. An additional thanks to Zoe Mullick for all the research she did for this episode. We definitely needed it. And one last thank you to you, the audience, for listening to this experiment of an episode and also my sort of weird Ira Glass impersonation. I promise I'm not trying to do it. We'll see you next week.